We're going to be in a couple different passages this morning, but we we are going to get started in Matthew chapter 7. So turn with me to Matthew 7. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and man, he has been bringing fire. He, he has gone through the Beatitudes and shown them what life as a citizen of heaven looks like and how that translates to here on earth, how we can live as as. Uh, uh, subjects of the king while we're still on earth and the things that bring blessings and happiness to us uh, uh, being mourning and weak uh, uh, me excuse me and hungry and thirsting for righteousness and and um, being peacemakers and pure at heart and those those sort of things he talks about being salt and light he talks about how he has come not to overthrow the law but to fulfill the law and how mightily he fulfilled the law so much so that just him living in us is enough to enable us to fulfill god's law he talks about anger and how it's not just about whether you kill the man but about you hating him in your heart. He talks about lust. It's not just about committing adultery, but it's about you lusting after her in your heart. It's a divorce. He talks about the fact that when, when someone has a divorce, that that's not the way God intended it to be in the first place. He tells them to make good on your oaths. When you say yes, make it yes. When you say no, make it no. Don't swear by God. Don't swear by the things of heaven. He says, don't, don't take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Love your enemies. He says, be careful. You can practice your righteousness in front of all kinds of people and you can do these things outwardly just for show. You're only going, you got your reward right there. No, instead do it with your right hand, with your left hand behind you. So not even your left hand knows what you're doing. When you're praying, here's how you should pray. And he sets out a model prayer. He says, when you fast, don't do it like the Pharisees. Don't get up in front of large crowds and proclaim how you're fasting and, and, and do all these signs to show that you're holier than someone else. No, when you fast, do it quietly. Store up your treasures in heaven. They're not going to get destroyed there. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what clothes you're going to wear. God feeds the sparrows. He clothes the lilies. And you're worth more than a bird or a flower. Don't judge. Instead, judge yourself. Get the log out of your own eye and then you can see to help your brother get the speck out of his. Ask and it will be given to you. He gives them the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you you know a tree by its fruit not everyone who says lord lord will enter my kingdom and then to finish off this sermon jesus doesn't do what modern preachers like to do if you go to a a, a class and or you go to a, a seminar of preachers or you go to a or you just you just download a whole bunch of sermons and listen to them you'll almost hear in just about every sermon or most of the sermons will end with some sort of poem or some sort of song lyrics or something like that. Just kind of an artistic kind of finish to the sermon that kind of brings everything back together. I do that sometimes. Jesus doesn't end that way. 
Instead, Jesus ends by drawing an analogy. And I want us to look at this analogy. Stand with me. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27 will be our kickoff point tonight. And you might be, or this morning, and you might be wondering, what does this have to do with revival? You'll see. Matthew 7, verse 24. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Pray with me. Father, make us wise this morning. Help us. Help us to do our part. Help us to do what you've called us to do. That we may be in the place where we are ready for your revival. Work in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sorry my voice is going a little bit. I promise I have not been yelling at my kids the last few days. It's not It's not me yelling a lot. And it wasn't me yelling at any screens yesterday. Um, what is the difference between a wise and a foolish man? It's kind of, kind of funny. You look back at this parable. And it's interesting because it's not what you think it is. Normally, when we think of wisdom, we think of people knowing a lot, right? We think of wisdom. Wisdom comes from the, the universities. Wisdom comes through study. Wisdom comes through a lifetime of learning, right? We think of wisdom. We think of, of what you know. And, and what you know is important, but Jesus actually points us to the secret of wisdom here, and it's not knowing. Notice, at the beginning of 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine, and he's going to talk about a wise man, then in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine, they both knew. Both the wise and the foolish man in this analogy knew. Both of them knew. Why? Because both of them built a house. And if, if it had been that the foolish man had built a really rickety house, Jesus would have said that. But he doesn't build a rickety house. The wise man and the foolish man aren't separated by what they know. The wise man and the foolish man are separated by something else. In fact, I dare say, I bet you both of these guys were quite experienced. I mean, anybody here build your own house? There's always one. Really? I got, can you come to my house a little later? I've got some projects. Surely, if you're going to build a house, you know that it needs a proper foundation, right? Right? I mean, how many of you know that you need a good, strong foundation for your house? And none of you are builders, except for her. She's not, she, she's just a jack of all, she's just like, she can, do, she can cook, she can build. Man, what? you're amazing. Seriously, I do need some stuff. To... <laughs> the difference isn't that one knows and one doesn't. They both know how to build a house. They both built a house. And they both ought to have known to put it, on, put it on a good foundation. So what's the difference between the wise man and the foolish man? 
What's the difference between the one whose house stands and the one whose house falls? It's that one of them does what Jesus says. In the analogy, that is putting your house on a solid foundation. But what Jesus says is the one who, know, who hears these words of mine and does them is wise. But the one who hears and does not do them is foolish. The difference between wisdom and foolish is do you do what you know to do? Surely, the foolish man, who I suspect probably had advanced degrees from a highly esteemed academic institution, surely he knew sand is not a good foundation. And was he too lazy? Was he in a hurry? I don't know. But he doesn't do. He knows, but he doesn't do. I want to submit to you the fourth rule of revival. The revival comes when God's people seek him in righteous obedience. We have to actually do what God has told us to do. You see, sometimes we think of revival and we think of it in the spiritual kind of terms. The kind of terms of, of what we've been talking about, praying and, and cherishing God's word and hearing it and listening to it. And seeking God and humbly repenting of our sins before Him. And all those things are important. We've already talked about all of those things. But if we don't do what God commands of us, how in the world can God's Spirit empower us? How in the world are we going to be revived in our hearts if we are disobedient to the God who wants to revive us? It don't work. It doesn't work. We do not know the presence of God more abundantly than when we are actively involved in doing His will. There's two aspects I want to point out about this obedience. One, when we obey God, we experience the blessings of God. When we obey God, it puts us right square in the center of His will, and that's where His blessings flow. I think of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm. You should read it. But I also think of a passage in the book of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet. He's a minor prophet. And if I remember correctly, he was a prophet in uh, the northern kingdom. Hosea is... Um, well, Hosea's the one, Hosea's the one that goes and marries a woman of ill repute and has some kids. And the first one's probably his. The second one, there's some question about. Third one's definitely not. She cheats on him. She ends up getting sold into slavery. So he, so he takes some of his crops and some money that he's got and he buys her back. And it's this picture of God loving Israel so much, even though Israel is unfaithful to God. Well, Hosea isn't just that love story. The rest of the book are prophecies that this prophet declares against Israel for its unfaithfulness. But then, but then he finishes it off with a plea. Hosea 14. I want to read the entire chapter to you. Just listen to the heart of the prophet. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. 
for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we say no more our God to the work of our hands. In, the or- in you, the orphan finds mercy. Just, just, just pause right here for just a moment. The call is to return. The word is shuv. It's a critical word throughout all the prophets. Repent. Turn back. Return. It says return. Return to God. You see, our unfaithfulness, our iniquities, our disobedience is what has taken us from God in the first place. And so he says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. God, forgive us of our sins. Accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. That It might sound almost like a, a, a rope kind of thing that like, okay, this is, you know, tell one kid does something to another kid and you say, tell him you're sorry. I'm sorry. That's not what this is like. Because watch, verse three. Listen to the declarations they make. Assyria shall not save us. At that point in time, there was a lot of turmoil in the ancient Near East. That area was under struggle because Egypt is still trying to hold on to its power. Assyria is a rising power. You've got the Hittites in the north that are causing issues. There's all kinds of battles and skirmishes and things, and they are trying to work out their place among all these nations. They're fighting for control and for power. And so one day... This group is your friend and that group is your enemy. Then another day, well, this one's more powerful, so we're going to switch alliances to them. And now we're fighting against that one. At this particular day, they were trusting in Assyria. They were asking Assyria for help. And they were paying tribute to Damascus, or to Nineveh, excuse me, uh, to the the capital of Assyria. At this point, Assyria, they're looking to Assyria to save them, to rescue them to protect them. They're willing to abandon that. We will not ride on horses. You had horses in warfare. You were pretty hot stuff. We're not going to trust in military might. We're not going to trust in our soldiers, in our generals, in the weaponry that we have, in our ability to fight. We're not going to trust in our idols either. We will no longer say our God to the work of our hands. All the things that they're putting their trust in instead of God, they are getting rid of and saying, no more, no more. We're not going to trust that anymore. We're not going to trust that anymore. We're not going to trust that anymore. The prophet is calling them to stop trusting everything that will fail and to put their trust in the God who will not. Return to God. Do what he has told you to do. And then God responds, starting in verse four. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. That's also huge. His anger is repenting. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. The best trees in that part of the world are in Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon were so famous that that when David secures things to build the temple out of, he goes to Lebanon and for the wood and he says, "I, I want some of those cedars for this temple for God. 
His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Do you see the connection here? When Israel finally does what God wants it to do, then God pours out his blessings. And what greater blessing is there God for God to pour out than his own spirit? The, 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 the grain, vine, the, those are not the blessings nearly so much as God himself is. He just brings a lot of cool stuff with him. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who look, who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, oh, that's interesting. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. You see, when we obey God, we put ourselves right there, right in that sweet spot. I think of Brantley's playing baseball, working on batting and catching and things like that. And if you think about it, there's a little bit of a, a correlation here. The batter... The batter has so many things to get right. His feet need to be positioned in the right place. If he's too far from the plate, he's not going to hit anything. And if he's too close to the plate, he's not going to hit anything. He's got to be at that right distance. He's got to have those shoulders back so that when the ball comes, he's ready to swing. you got to swing straight. You don't swing like a golf club. And you don't swing like an axe. Stop it. you got to swing it straight, right? All of that, though, all of that becomes subservient to one thing. The ball. You see, because if the ball is too high, it don't matter how much you swing, you ain't going to hit it. If the ball is real low, you're probably not going to hit it. If the ball comes really fast, you got to swing a lot quicker, don't you? If it's slow and you swing right away, it ain't got there yet. Everything you do is dependent as a batter on the ball. You swing to hit the ball. You keep your eye on the ball. If we want to see God's revival among us, if we want to see the Spirit of God moving among us, then we've got to be responsive to God. We can't just sit here and do our own thing. The church of Ephesus is a great example of this in Revelation 2. I know your works. You do all kinds of great works. You're not tolerating false doctrines or false preachers. You're doing all kinds of great things. Ephesus, you, you are, well, let me read it. He says, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. They've got great doctrine. They're enduring the trials with patience. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. This sounds like an awesome church. He says, except for one thing, you left your first love. You didn't keep your eye on the ball. When we are obedient to God, however, 
we put ourselves right on that sweet spot. We got our eyes on that ball. We know exactly when to swing and we time it just right. And we smack that ball square in the middle of it. We don't hit it on the top where it bounces um, grounder straight to first base. We don't hit it foul off to the sides. We smack that thing right in the center and who knows? We may not have to run very fast around the bases. When we are obeying God, when we are responding to Him with obedience, we put ourselves in the perfect spot for His blessings. Now, those blessings may not look like blessings. Sometimes they look like curses. Sometimes those blessings look like enemies who are persecuting you. Sometimes those blessings look like difficult trials in your life that that you look at and you think, how in the world is God in this? How many of you can look back on a terrible time in your life and say, oh, I see God's hand now. How many of you can look back and say, yeah, I, I see what God was doing there. It didn't look like it at the time, did it? But there he is. Sometimes those blessings may not look like blessings, but when you remember that God himself is the blessing and that everything else is just gravy, makes you want to get a few more biscuits, doesn't it? Sometimes... Sometimes I think where we go wrong is that we only want the blessing. We only want the item. What do I need to do to get this? What do I need to do to fix this? What do I need to do to work all this out? But God's the blessing. And everything else, well, everything else is just icing on top. Second thing I want to point to about obedience. In a way, um, we're going to kind of have to follow a guy's life to see this lesson. But that's okay. We got time, right? So obedience requires commitment to God's commands. It's not just enough to hear what God has said. You got to actually follow through with it. But you don't follow through with something without actually trying to follow through. Think about it. How many of you do your taxes do your own taxes. A lot of effort goes into it, doesn't it? How many of you outsource that to somebody else? <laughs> they put in a lot of effort into that. I want you to know. Even if you think you have a simple return, there's still, there's still quite a bit going on behind the scenes. But you don't do it without actually trying to do it, right? You don't accidentally, you don't wake up one day and, oh, I accidentally filled out my taxes. That doesn't happen, does it? (laughs) Would you look at that? All that honeydew list just got done. I barely, barely did anything, right? Doesn't happen. Why do we think it's going to happen that way with God? Why do we think that just praying a prayer, just coming to church, just, just checking off a few things off the checklist, just reading the Bible for five minutes, you know, because that's all we can spare is five minutes. And not really even paying attention, but just kind of working through it and checking off the right number of chapters to finish our Bible reading plan. How come we think that works with God? I mean, is that not like bringing a, 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 a lamb that's all spotted and uh, uh, that's got a messed up leg and it's hobbling? Wouldn't it be like bringing that to, to offer to God as a sacrifice? We think that just because we quote unquote do it means that God automatically has to honor it. There's, there's a doctrine. 
um, there's a Latin phrase for it that the Catholic Church has. That they believe that communion becomes the body and the blood of Christ. The bread and the, the wine become, actually literally become, the body and, and the blood of Christ. And they say that it happens just by the doing of it. Just by doing this particular thing, it automatically happens. But that's not the way it works with God. You see, the way it works with God, you got to actually commit to doing it. you got to actually put the effort into it. If it's not intentional, it ain't going to happen. Deuteronomy 5, 32 makes this so clear. He says, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Okay? Think of a balance beam. You balance. You walk on it. You don't go too far on one side or you're going to fall. You don't go too far to the other side or you're going to fall. To stay on the balance beam, you have to keep your weight centered. you got to stay on that beam. You can't go to either side. The same is true with God. You can make a lot of mistakes in a lot of different ways, but there's only one way to obey God, and that's to actually do what He's told you to do. That's it. That's the only way to follow God. So you should be careful to do it. Now, that phrase, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, is repeated several times in the Old Testament. But there's a story of one guy who pulls it off, who it actually says doesn't turn to the right or to the left. It's a king. His name is Josiah. Josiah, let me tell you a little bit about Josiah. Josiah, uh, his grandfather was Manasseh, one of the most long-reigning kings in, Ju in Judah's history and one of the most evil, if not the most evil. In fact, it's, it, it's in Manasseh's reign that God says, all right, this people cannot stay here. They're going to have to go into exile. So Manasseh reigns for like 50 years. And toward the end of his life, finally, within a couple of years of his death, Manasseh finally repents of his sin. Now, there's some question as to how far he went with his repentance, whether it was fully genuine or, or whether there was kind of, he was kind of iffy or whatever. No matter. At the end of his life, he turns away from his sin and turns toward God. But by then, it's too late for the kingdom. Rebellion is rampant. Nobody's following God. And his son, Amos, was even worse than Manasseh was. But after a couple of years, Manasseh dies. Amos lives for a couple of years as king. And when he dies, an eight-year-old boy named Josiah gets the crown put upon his head. Now, I was a third grader when I was eight. Miss McDonald's class. I remember that. Because if you have a teacher named Miss McDonald and you're a third grader, you got to wonder whether she has a farm or not. Okay, it's just natural. But I remember Miss McDonald's class, and I remember, even at that age, that I would not have made a good king. Now, looking back now, I thought I would have been a great king <laughs> then. Now, looking back, man, that would have been terrible. It's a good thing I didn't become king at eight. Josiah becomes king at eight. And then listen to how 2 Chronicles describes his reign in general. 2 Chronicles 34. By the way, this is a misprint in your bulletin. It should be 34 through 35. It should be the chapters on that last point, not 33 through 34. 
So 2 Chronicles 34 through 35 should be there. I'd encourage you to read those and read the chapters in 2 Kings that are listed as well because the life of Josiah shows beautifully what obedience to God looks like. But it says this, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And then check this out. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. It's the only person in the Old Testament that is described as not turning aside from God's ways to the right hand or to the left. He stays true. For in the eighth year of his reign, they had been 16, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. The chapter goes on to describe just how he does that. And he was apparently pretty serious about it because as a 20-year-old lad, he said all this stuff has to go. And so not only does he take it down, not only does he dismantle it and go put it in a storage room somewhere, he burns the Asherah poles. The Asherim are, it's plural for Asherah, so the Asherah poles, he's burning them. They're made of wood, carved images in them, kind of think along the lines of a totem pole. He's burning all of them. He's desecrating the altars. He's burning human bones on them. He's killing all the priests that are ministering to these false gods in these high places. He's desecrating the false places. He's doing everything he can to make sure that nobody uses that place as a place of worship to some false god. He does everything he can. And in fact, in one time, he comes to a site and he's getting ready to do it. And he says, "Who? what is that marker right there? Oh, that's the grave of the prophet that said that you'd be doing all this stuff. And he says, leave that guy alone. <laughs> he, he can rest in peace. Don't mess with him. Just destroy everything else. Not only does he do that, he starts to rebuild the temple. The temple, you can imagine, you're worshiping all these false gods there's no need for a temple to the true God, right? So he just goes in disrepair. He has them rebuilding. Finds some guys that are honest enough that he doesn't even have to take accounting for how they spend the money. But they're rebuilding and they find, they find a scroll. And Hilkiah, he's the high priest. He's the one in charge of the temple repairs. He's, he says, hey, he comes to one of the king's advisors and says, hey, I found this, I found this book. They take a look at it. They say, well, the king needs to see this. So this advisor comes to the king and says, here, that, this was found in the temple. Josiah reads it. He tears his clothes because his people have been breaking the laws of God so much. So they rebuild the temple. He comes back in and he reads this book to the people of Israel and they make a covenant with God to follow God's ways. They do the Passover. Passover is something that Jews wouldn't miss now. They missed it for 500 years. From the time they had entered the land, Joshua had led the last Passover, and now Josiah is renewing it. It says that there hadn't been a Passover. There hadn't been a Passover like that. He's reforming. He's doing the works of God so that by the end of his reign, the author of Kings says this, before him, there was no king like him, 
who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Heart, soul, might. Where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah. That's the greatest commandment, isn't it? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus adds in mind just to make sure his Greek listeners get everything out of it because in the Hebrew, the heart and the mind are all together. That's the greatest command. And he did it. He shooed. He turned to God. As my Hebrew professor would say, with everything, with everything else and whatever's left over, with that too. If we want to see revival, that's got to be us. You're not a king. You can't make the nation, you can't tear down all the false places and, and, and restore the temple of God. But God is calling you to do some things. There are some high places that need to get torn down. Make sure they're not yours. Make sure that there are no high places in your heart where you're worshiping some false god some God of your own desires or your own making or, or some God that looks an awful lot like you because that tends to be what we do, right? Make sure that you're not worshiping a God that society is declaring to be a God but is not. Make sure you're not worshiping a God that your parents have worshipped or that your great-grandparents have worshipped, that you've elevated to the status of divineness and, and yet it's not God. In a few weeks, we're going to start talking about those false gods, the false gods that are all around us. We need to make sure there's none of those high places in us. Maybe, maybe it's not revising the Passover, but maybe for you it's just leading your family in the ways of God. Maybe it's more than just reading through the Bible for five minutes a day just to get your reading plan done. Maybe it's establishing an altar in your home leading your family to worship. And those of you who don't have a family in the house, maybe it's about you being that advisor who brings the book of the law to your loved ones and says, you need to see this. Maybe you need to make again the commitment to God to follow him wherever he leads. Obedience requires commitment, y'all. And when we are committed to doing what God has called us to do, he will pour out his spirit to empower us to do what he has made us to do, to be who he has made us to be. But he'll only do it when we faithfully obey. Revival, when it comes, comes when we are obedient. Are you? You can be. Today, be careful to do all that God has commanded of you. We're going to pray, sing a verse of invitation as we do. You ask God, what do I need to do to serve you? And then do it. Father, help us to be obedient to you this morning. Be with us in this time. Lead us and empower us to do your will. In Christ's name, amen.